This is Garth from the Lost Cabin in rural Massachusetts. I'm holding a nice, shiny 1921 Morgan Silver Dollar in my hand. And with this coin, I can get a steak, loaf of bread, dozen eggs, pound of rice, pound of potatoes, pound of onions, beans, tomatoes. But if I want to get a pound of coffee... I'm going to need another dollar. I wonder if people will think coffee is expensive in the future. I want you to come along with us while we hike out to a spooky, sacred place that has hundreds and hundreds of years of layered Massachusetts lost history. We hope you enjoy it. Good morning. I'm driving west on Route 9, Massachusetts, under uh, an endless September blue sky. It's 55 gorgeous degrees. I've got my piping hot coffee, my donkeys, and I'm ready to go. Passing through Framingham, Massachusetts, on my way to Sudbury, Massachusetts. The place we're going is actually right on the Framingham-Sudbury border. We're taking Route 9 out because it's quick. I'm going to take Route 20 back for historical reasons. But you can take either road out to get here. I've just turned off of Route 9 and I am about to turn right on Edge Hill Road. I'm passing through the historic and beautiful Framingham Commons. But I am not stopping here. Not today, anyway. When you cross the town line from Framingham to Sudbury, the name of the road changes from Edge Hill to Knobscot. And right at this point is where I turn left into a parking lot. Now, what is Knobscot? One of the main features is Knobscot Hill, a high elevation that you can climb up. There's a fire tower there, and it has great views. According to some people, you can even see as far as New Hampshire. Knobscot's also generally what people refer to this area as. There's a large conservation section of the towns that's referred to as the Knobscot Conservation Land. And a subsection of this, a portion of this land, is the Knobscot Scout Reservation. It's a Boy Scout camp. The camp was founded in 1928, but what was here before 1928? And what was here before there was something here before 1928? Well, Knobscot is the general name that people know this area by. It comes from the word Penobscot, which either means falling rock or split rock. I think the exact translation is place where the rocks open. And it's a fitting description because there are lots of broken rocks here, lots of rocks that will come tumbling down on you as you try and climb a hill. However, Knobscot might not have been the original name for this land. According to what I know and what I've read, the original name may have been Muscatakwid, which means grassy stream. So I'm here at Knobscot Reservation, and I'm here with uh, two of my old scout buddies, Ian and Mike. 
And we were just talking about some of the first times that we went up here. And I think, I think the first time I came up here camping, I was probably eight or nine years old. It must have been 1979 or 1978. Mike, what would be your guess your first time up here? First time I was up here was probably around the same time I came up uh, on a bus sponsored by the Nonantum Christmas Party Association from Newton. And we came up to the annual uh, Christmas Hanukkah campfire that was inside. Uh, I was very impressed about how big it was. And then later on, I went to the Cub Scout Day Camp here. And eventually, years later, I worked there one summer. But the first time I went camping here overnight, I think, was 1980, the fall of 1980. And uh, it was quite an experience. I, the kid I was supposed to be camping with had forgotten the tent poles. So we had a tent but no poles, so we ended up sleeping under a tarp. And it rained a lot. But I uh, had a good time and uh, a lot of good memories up here growing up as a kid. Like I said, and I had a chance to work here one summer as a uh, counselor at the Cubs Scout Day Camp. Thank you. Ian, what about you? What was your first memory of this place? Yeah, so my Cub Scout troop came up here for, I wouldn't want to call it a camp out, it was cabin camping, and there's a there's like a, a, a pond at the top of the hill uh, with a cabin right next to it, so our Cub Scout troop arranged to stay there. This is probably around 78 or 79, and uh, I remember that, first of all, the pond was there. At the, now, I went up there yesterday, this actually the pond is completely dried up. But the cabin's still there, and I remember uh, sleeping there, and there was mice running around in the in the rafters, <laughs> and, and somebody was snoring pretty loudly too. But it was a fun time, and actually, I've been you know I, since then, you know, more than for we've I've been coming here for more than forty years. I think all of us have been coming here for more than forty. Yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. No, I was here. I was here last uh, fall, actually, even camping out with uh, another scout troop. Uh, but now, obviously, hearing all this, we're just a bunch of old guys. <laughs> So that's the sound of an old manual pump, and we're actually pumping out fresh spring water from the ground at Knobscott Reservation. So the first time that I went to smallpox burial ground, it was kind of talked about in a very vague way. People didn't seem to know, at least the people I was with, didn't seem to have a full history of what it was. The other scouts just said, there are these stone graves out in the woods. And we actually had a hard time finding them at first. Uh, they were overgrown and they were sort of out of the way. You had to look and almost uh, trip over them before you could find them. And we were told at the time that it was a Native American burial ground. Uh, what, did you, what did you guys, what were you guys told about it first? Pretty much the same thing of you, that it was just something that was always here and that it was uh, somewhat of a hollowed place and that it was, you know, on maps they had a ghost on it. So it, was, it had sort of a, an allure of a, of a mystery. Yeah. yeah, so I was in a different troop and we heard the same thing. It was a Native American burial ground, but there wasn't much to see. That's what I remember of it. I was Because when you say, you know, burial ground, you're thinking markers of some kind or a plaque but at the time this is in the late 70s you know they didn't I don't think they had anything or it was overgrown and couldn't couldn't easily be seen so we turned uh, left uh, off of 
Pond Trail onto Nixon Trail. Nixon's another name that has a lot to do with the history and the history of the Revolutionary War. But we're coming to a fork in the trail, and the trail we're going to start walking down is called 30 Rod Road. And that's a funny name that actually deserves a little bit of discussion. So what is a rod? Do you get, does it ever explain to you what a rod is? I have a feeling it's something roughly about three feet long, but I could be completely wrong about that. I just thought it was a measurement of a unit, and it wasn't until I was a few years into scouts that I was told about that. I never really knew what the meaning was, but it is a measurement of unit. So this was a great place to come camping as kids, to come hiking, and uh, a lot of memories here for all of us. But I always got the feeling that it, it was a little spooky, that the place was a little haunted. Did you ever feel that way, Mike? I think when I was younger, and then as I got older, and I worked here one summer as a counselor, um, we brought the Cub Scouts up here, and it was, you know, we kind of piped it up that it was haunted and spooky, but, you know, I mean, that was... It wasn't in the middle of the night. That was in the afternoon. So I think coming out here at night was a little bit more uh, exciting. Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially the way that the, the trees would play with the light if you had moonlight or something like that. And, of course, you can maybe hear the breeze coming through right now. The, the, the wind in the trees is always sort of a spooky thing. I have, I, have, I mean, I, I got the sense that this was a spooky place. And one reason is is because... There's no campgrounds around around the uh, smallpox smallpox cemetery. Everything yeah. is really quite a quite a ways a, a ways away. I mean, what's the nearest campground to there? It was a clear moonlit night that made the birch trees look like they were drawn with charcoal on paper. Our scoutmaster announced we were going on a night hike to an ancient burial ground. Our flashlights were off. We were learning to trust our night vision. Without artificial light, your iris will expand and allow as much natural light in as possible. It works, but even with good vision, you can't see everything at night, and your brain starts filling in details for you. This is when people start to see phantoms and lurking shapes. It was bad enough the scoutmaster was taking us to a grave at night, but then he started talking about something called a snipe, and I put my fingers in my ears. Do you remember what a snipe hunt is, Mike? Yes, I actually went on one when I was a younger scout, and it um, didn't take place here. It was up in New Hampshire, and... They were really hyping it up, saying, oh, it's snipes taste great. They're like chickens. They look like this, that, and the other thing. And they took us out to the woods, and they gave us a, a brown paper bag and told us to sit in the woods and say, here, snipe, here, snipe, here, snipe. <laughs> then eventually they came and got us and said it was, you know, ha, 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 the joke's on you. <laughs> yeah, so the, the snipe hunt is really, it's kind of a, it's a practical joke. And usually you tell people that they need a bag and a big stick. Yeah to find this uh, mythical bird which may actually be extinct. But one feature that lets you know that there used to be a lot of people around here is the fact that there's stone walls um, crisscrossing the whole area. And I think in the 1600s and 1700s, maybe the, even the 1800s, you know, the hard scrabble farmers that came out here to try to till the land, they had to move a lot of rocks 
and uh, you can't, I mean, I can only imagine how difficult it was to move like a 50 or 60 pound boulder. Of course, they had, you know, oxen or horses to help them out with that task, but this, these uh, walls would mark the edges of fields where they would try to grow something. So, like I said, when we were young, this was kind of difficult to find. It was overgrown and nobody seemed to really know the complete history of it. But now it's actually been preserved. There is a path off of 30 Rod Road, which will take you to the site. And originally, it were, there were three piles. There were three distinct stone piles in the shape of a human body. And those were the three graves that we knew about. Supposedly, more have been discovered in the meantime. And I'm guessing this is probably also an Eagle project or maybe a, a multiple Eagle project. They put a wooden fence, a wooden corral around the cemetery portion. And there is a sign here that describes what the intent was. The first time I've been out here in about 10 or 12 years, but prior to that, it was it wasn't as well marked as this. It was something you had to kind of know where it was. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely something kind of spooky and cool about knowing where an ancient cemetery was, one that wasn't really marked anywhere. It was just an odd reference on a map. And I seem to remember three piles. The, the other piles may have been really covered up at the time, really overgrown, and the stones scattered. I remember sometimes kids in building a fire pit would take rocks from these piles and we would tell them to bring them right back. <laughs> Clearly th these are these are marked by you know human length, human shaped piles of stones. So Ian, why would you why would you think that they would use stones to cover a grave when obviously that's not going on in any other New England cemetery? Well, there's uh I can see a couple of reasons. Some of them from the you know, there's real logic behind it, some of it kind of superstitious, but one reason would be is that if you do not want uh, grave robbers to, to dig up the body, um, you'd put rocks on top, and I'm thinking because these are, you know, maybe, maybe they believe that the smallpox virus was able to survive uh, even after being buried for a while, put rocks there to keep people from, from tampering with it. Um, I don't know. There might be some other superstitions from that yeah. period that we don't even know about anymore. Yeah, I mean, the, the story that I was always told was that it was to prevent the spirits from getting out of the grave here and haunting people. So who was buried here and why? No headstones and not much information. The date of the cemetery marked on the map is 1792. This date likely comes from the one commonly known person buried here, a 20-year-old man named Buckley Howe. The woods just south of the cemetery are called Howe Pines, apparently in his honor. The remains of the Howe family homestead can be seen in the southern extreme corner of the Knobscott property. The Howes had 14 children, including Buckley. The Howes were a prominent family in the area and even ran a historic tavern nearby. Buckley Howe was likely infected with smallpox, a virus that causes deep scarring skin lesions, and in many cases, a fatal pneumonia. Smallpox has plagued human civilization for most of recorded history. Traces of the virus have been found in Egyptian mummies from 5,000 years ago. 
Native peoples of Massachusetts were decimated by the disease, and regular outbreaks were often linked to ships arriving from Europe. The particular outbreak of the late 18th century coincides with the British troops' arrival to put down the rebellion. It's possible Buckley Howe and others could have been saved at the time. Inoculations against smallpox had been successfully used for centuries in Asia and were gaining popularity in Europe. But many considered inoculation to be the devil's work, and the procedure was in fact illegal in Sudbury. The following is a reading from History of Sudbury by Alfred Hudson, 1889. The same year measures were taken for the prevention of smallpox. The article concerning it in the warrant was to see if the town would admit the smallpox into said town by inoculation. It passed in the negative. The following year, the selectmen were instructed to make a diligent search to see if there were any persons who had been inoculated for smallpox, contrary to law. So I'll just brief what the sign actually says in front of the cemetery. It's titled Knobscot Smallpox Cemetery, and the cemetery holds the remains of local residents that died of smallpox during the 1700s. The depression in the ground nearby is likely the basement of a small house that sheltered the sick. So as we turn away from the, uh, the actual cemetery, we do see this deep pit. And usually these deep pits that you'll find in the woods in Massachusetts and other places, these are in fact cellar holes. Now, of course, the graves are the feature that we remember and the thing that brought us out here, but it's actually this, this cellar hole that makes it a community. And this is the difference between people just being buried way out in the woods and there actually being a place to live next to it. Now, the cellar hole was for what was called a pest house. And pest, think of the words like pestilence. Pest is usually an old word that they would refer to a plague. They would refer to, you know, an ongoing sickness through the community as a pest. And the pest house was actually a place where people who lived, they were all sick. They were all infected with the smallpox. They moved them out of the community to this location to live. And many of the people would actually get over it and go home. And the people who had recovered from smallpox became the caretakers of the people who were sick. They would bring food to these people. They would come out and take care of them while they had the illness and lived in the, um, in the pest house. And in this way, this is truly a lost and forgotten community of Massachusetts. This particular place where people lived together for extended periods of time, people moved in and out. And we only remember it because of the graves, but it was a community. Even though we had visited the old cemetery and the site of the pest house, it was still a great day for hiking. So we checked out some other features that have curious pasts and we'll drift into another episode later about Knobscot. 
Yeah, this this old rock actually isn't on the map, but it's such an obvious feature that I always imagined that it was it had some meaning to somebody, that it might have been some, you know, ancient religious site of some kind. I, years ago, when I was becoming an assistant scoutmaster and eventually a scoutmaster, one of the trainings that we did up here was something called Tanimus, and I believe that this was at one time called Tanimus Rock, and it's where Chief Tanimus held court, so to speak. I, I distinctly remember a few scoutmasters, and it could have been a joke, telling me that somewhere up here there was a lost treasure and that people sometimes would go and look for it. Did you guys ever hear anything like that? I don't remember anything like that. You don't remember that. anything like that? No, I just remember that in addition to everything that we've already discussed, that up in the corner there was something called Northwest Territory that no one ever really went to because it was so far away. And that on a map there was something called Old Man Knobscot, and it was like a cartoon character of like a of like you know a mountain man, and it was coming around from a rock. The guy hiding behind the rock. What did you call him? Old Man Knobscot. So Old Man Knobscot shows up on the map, and we would hear about him every once in a while, and people would talk about him like he was some sort of ghost or phantom. And what, did you ever hear anything specific about him, Ian? Any characteristics? No, I mean, it was like the mountain man type of thing. But uh, And maybe I even saw the same map or diagram with, a you know, he's kind of peeking behind a rock or a tree or something like that. But I don't remember any other details. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he was, he was kind of talked about like as a spirit of the whole reservation. And based on what I've been reading in my research, I think that Old Man Knobscot is a reference to Tantamus. Because the English used to call Tantamus... Old Jethro, and this is this is where he lived. So my guess, and I'll have to dig into this some more. I think that Old Man Knobscot is a reference to the old Tantamus chief. That would make sense because I believe there's a Jethro Trail. There is around. a Jethro Trail. Yeah, Jethro Trail. All of these trails actually have deep meaning that I knew nothing about when we were kids. Nobody ever explained it to us. Knobscot still has more mysteries, but they will have to wait. Stay tuned for directions to Smallpox Burial Ground, right after the commercial. Directions to Smallpox Burial Ground. From Route 9 in Framingham, turn on Edge Hill Road. If you're coming from Route 20 in Sudbury, turn on Knobscot Road. From Knobscot, turn into the reservation and park in the daytime lot. If you park in the overnight lot, you might get blocked in by campers. Register at the ranger station. Take the Legion Trail to Pond Trail. Turn left on the Nixon Trail and then turn right on 30 Rod. Look very carefully on the right side of the trail for an opening in the stone wall and treat the place with some respect. We'll be chasing the ghost of Tantamus in a future follow-up episode. But for next time, we're going to visit a lost Boston that's buried under thousands of tons of dirt and forgotten. We'll walk on streets whose names were erased from the map and recount the lives of people who called this long-gone wharf a home. Until then, this is Garth in the Lost Cabin, 
saying it's always 1928 somewhere. Hey, if you like the show for some reason, there are lots of ways you can join the fun or get a hold of us. You can message Lost Mass through the podcast apps on Anchor. There's a voice option. Or you can go to lostmassachusetts.com and subscribe to our blog or use the various methods there to contact us. If you go to lostmassachusetts.com, you can also sign up to get a postcard from a lost place and find out where to send us a lost postcard too. Also go to Lost Massachusetts at uh, Instagram for photos and other details. We will do our best to respond to comments uh, directly uh, as well as within the show. You might hear um, your own comment. That's fun.